This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with author and regenerative farmer Charles Massey. Charles, also known as Charlie, joins us to discuss the re-release of his acclaimed book, Call of the Reed Warbler, A New Agriculture, A New Earth, which is all about the extensive environmental health and economic benefits of regenerative agriculture as compared with industrial agriculture. We also discuss the connection between soil health and human health, and Charles shares why the transition to regenerative farming is urgent now more than ever. And I'm so excited to be welcoming my next guest onto the program. His name is Charles Massey, or Charlie, as he's often called by his friends and colleagues. And uh, he is an author and regenerative farmer. He is the author of a book called Call of the Reed Warbler, A New Agriculture, A New Earth, which has just been re-released in a revised and updated edition. It is uh, put out through the University of Queensland Press. And, uh, yeah, it is a very hefty tome. And uh, I've got to say, there are no superfluous words. So it is really something that deserves the level of scrutiny and deep thought that Charlie has really provided. And uh, it is such a wonderful book. And no doubt some people may already be familiar with Charlie. And uh, his story was featured on Australian Story, the ABC program. And uh, he speaks regularly in farming forums, but also at a range of public events to talk about regenerative farming and what that encompasses. And it is quite a a broad area that it does encompass. So I'm so excited and honoured, I've got to say, to welcome Charlie onto the program and say a massive thank you, Charlie, for your time and your generous willingness to share your insights and story today. Morning, Amy, and uh, reciprocated. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Well, I've got to say, watching the Australian Story program as a bit of a visual primer for our conversation, it was so amazing to see your farm and to also, I guess, contrast it in the landscape with which it sits and, of course, the other farms and areas of land that surround your farm in New South Wales. So, first of all, I would love for you to take us through your farm as it is today and also how it's changed and how the landscape around you has changed because this is a farm I understand that you grew up on and of which your father was a farmer so farming of course is in the family is in the blood and I'd just love to hear that from you as to for our listeners to understand you know where you're coming from and what it looks like. Yeah thanks Amy. Sometimes I do wonder why we live here because we're in a rain shadow on the uh, eastern side of the Sky Mountain Range which intercepts a lot of the moisture but you know when you read a lot of books by great explorers and others it's often the harsher climates that really grab your heart and um, so we've got a few thousand acres here of a combination of country, treeless grassland basalts, granite country that was once grassy woodland before the white settlers arrived and they over-cleared that, which we're trying to reconstitute with diverse plantings and shrubs. And then we've got about a third of the place that we've kept as natural bush, maybe for a bit of firewood, but a lot of biodiversity there. So that's the picture. It's not really suitable for farming because our Monero region, we can get down to minus 12s and 13s with dry winters. 
So it's really, um, we find, um, suitable to grazing and, and we, we've evolved over time a, a specialist breed of merino sheep that we were pioneers of a non-mulesing approach, getting rid of those harmful practices and um, not using chemical and, and also through molecular genetics and breeding, evolving a really superb fibre that really usually goes into Italy for elite fabrics. So, uh, and occasionally in a big season we'll get in cattle just to help the ecological mulching of the extra grass. So that's a bit of a snapshot of what we've got. Mm. And in terms of the land that you're on, as you say, it's a very extreme scenario in terms of the weather and the conditions and um, also the soil. And obviously the weather plays into that in a, a significant way. And I know that, for example, down here in Victoria, you know, in South Gippsland, it's constantly raining. So it's very rare to have a dry, brownish coloured grass cover and very rare to have no grass cover at all. It's kind of unheard of. But then, as you say, there are other regions of Australia that do have this really harsh and arid quality to it and therefore is it correct that it probably wouldn't really be possible to have cropping in the area that you're in? Look Amy people do try it but um, the the best cropping zones usually have a winter rainfall so that their crops coming into the spring have got a good moisture profile on the soil. That's pretty much hit and miss in this environment so that's why I, I think it's you know more conducive to grazing and maybe a little bit of pasture improvement. And, um, and so I guess one of the secrets of, of what happened was that um, European settlers, when they came here, uh, and our, our, our farm, by the way, has um, a strong Aboriginal history, and, and I work with a senior lawman with um, traditional cultural burning. Uh, we run field days, and uh, I'm really in kindergarten learning what he knows about the land. But when the European settlers arrived, they... I guess it's understandable, but they came imbued with that sort of European post-Enlightenment mind of dominating nature, and um, and they assumed that this land of Australia functioned ecologically like Europe, that the soils were were rich and the, and the climate regular and moist, and you know good small water cycles. But the reason why across every region of Australia the devastation ecologically was so savage is that. Our, our landscape does not function like Europe. It's, um, you've got to expect long periods of dry. We, so Europe's soils, like North America, they're, they're only about 10,000 years young post-glacial, so they're chock full of nutrients. And they have, um, in England and northwest Europe, where our agriculture really evolved, they have um, you know, regular small water cycle and a very mild climate um, relative to ours and... and uh, you know, a, a constant moisture, etc., with those rich soils. And so when the practices like aggressive ploughing and overgrazing hits this country, it just collapses, you know, from basically every uh, ecological region in Australia, whether it's through overclearing of forests to overgrazing of grasslands and, and ploughing aggressively. We've just exposed for damage uh, what is a totally different landscape and the way it functions. You know, the things like mm-hmm. phosphorus, the soils of northwestern Europe are full of those sort of nutrients. Ours are very, very small quantities of that sort of stuff. So now soil ecology, the microbes and fungus, they're very good at cycling very quickly and sharing these small amounts of, of those sort of nutrients. And so when you go and dump on 
big doses of fertiliser, you basically wipe out all your important biology and, and it's an overdose that kills. So it's all understandable, but uh, we're only just starting to learn how to carefully regenerate this landscape. Yeah. Well, that's why I loved one particular, well, I love the whole book, but one particular part of it that struck me very strongly was this chapter in part two about Gondwana, which we all know was this huge landmass continent that Australia originally was part of and that we come from. And we were obviously connected to numerous other land masses, including Antarctica, which is now a separate continent. But I was really struck by this discussion that you go into further around the distinction between Europe and Australia in the sense that Australia's ancient rocks are far more stable and our continent's soil has formed much more slowly over a longer time frame and the nutrients have been constantly leached from this soil. And so the water coming off the rocks on young mountains have created these nutrient-rich soils in, as you say, in Europe and North America, but Australia being so ancient and having this amazing special ecology, really, and you point out Tim Flannery's uh, research in this, means that 80% of all Australian flowering plants, mammals, reptiles and frog species are endemic to Australia. Australia. So we are, as you say, in such a very unique position. And I've done so many interviews about how special and unique our flora and fauna is. But when you put it like that, and the implications that it has for farming, I think that really opened my eyes a lot more to how we should have been sensitive to the land, just as our First Nations people have been for thousands of years. Absolutely right. I mean, if we could rewind the... uh the movie script, so to speak, you'd have a huge warning sign for anyone stepping off a boat or a plane, beware, this land is incredibly fragile and different. And, you know, one classic example, other than the one I gave before about soils, is that because of that long history, you know, some of our soils, for example, in Western Australia are nearly three quarters of the age of the earth. They're 3.8 billion years old, some of them. And so over time, underneath much of our landscape, there's this big loading of salt, and so when you overclear your woodlands and your forests uh, and or overgraze your deep-rooted grasses, which is what's happened, that they used to act as a water pump, keeping that salt level down lower in the soil. Once those vegetation pumps go, the salt rises, and we now have millions of hectares of dry land salinity, and it's increasing. So it's those sort of things, not understanding how our landscape worked, with what sort of really hit us behind the ear and is still hitting us behind the ear. But look, that, that marvellous history you allude to, you know, that really 30-odd million or a bit more years ago when we, we actually broke free of the other Gondwanan continents like South America and Antarctica and really set off as one archaeologist, anthropologist described as, as an island arc sailing north. Things like, you know, there's a wonderful book, called Where Song Began, which describes how the majority of the songbirds, what are called the passerines in the world, evolved in Australia from our very intelligent crows and those sorts of birds and have spread around the world. And so our, our gift to the world with unique species of, of plants and marsupials and animals uh, and, and things like these unique birds, it's, uh, it's what makes Australia so special, this island arc that we are. Mm. So, big warning sign, handle with care. 
Absolutely. And one of the other parts of this that you bring into it in terms of our pre-colonisation history is that amazing Aboriginal Australian knowledge, but also connection with country, which you characterise so beautifully. But you also point out that when European settlers arrived and took over land that was not theirs. They assumed that it was this kind of open, empty, vacant land, that that Australian Aboriginals were hunter-gatherers that were kind of wandering the land and weren't actively cultivating the land. But as we've seen in books like Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe and other books by Bill Gamage that you reference in your book, in fact, it was actually actively cultivated and worked by our Indigenous First Nations peoples. So in that regard, how did that and has that informed you, the the knowledge of what our First Nations people did with the land and how they paid attention to it and its health? Look, great question. Uh, The answer is it's informed me enormously. I've been privileged to befriend this Indigenous elder uh, who's a local Ngarago man, um, most of them were exterminated, but some survived, and that, that story of small massacres has been hidden, um, repressed. But seeing their world through his eyes and then uh, other Indigenous friends and then reading widely, it just opened my eyes to people that have lived here for 65,000 years plus. And, and bear in mind, when they arrived, walking over shallow seas and then small boats from... India and Indonesia, etc. A lot of our megafauna were still kicking around. You know, giant goannas, three times the size of the Komodo dragons, and um, man-eating nine-foot-high kangaroos, and um, thylacine lions that were as big as a, an African lion. They had to contend with all that, let alone all the other poisonous creatures around. But over that 65,000 years plus time, as, as they segregated into about 250 distinct nations with their own language. But those nations were effectively eco-regions that they knew how to manage and, and instituted through their their law and their religion and their belief system and songlines. A sustainable management approach, you know, there's probably only a bit over a million at its peak of uh, First Nations people when Europeans arrived. And uh, that that sort of gave an indication of how sustainable management couldn't sustain much more. So the examples that they set was why I, I sort of start... The first main chapter of the book addresses the uh, our First Nations Indigenous history of this place and their practices and, and the sophistication of it. And so people like Bill Gamage... Uh, both he and Bruce Pascoe are friends, and, and Bill Gamage's book is just wonderful, um, Greatest Estate on Earth. He, he really goes into how cultural burning did shape a landscape, created these open woodlands. And Bruce Pascoe's work keeps unfolding. You know, he, he, he's distinctly showing that uh, an early form of agriculture was definitely practised here, whether it was eel farming or yam cultivation or making some of the first, not just unleavened, but leavened bread out of the wonderful harvesting and um, things like the Brawarana fish traps, as he points out, are possibly the oldest human construction on earth. So things like that, it, it's a wonderful history that we can learn from and be proud of. And So it has influenced me and, and I'm continuing to learn from it. Indeed. And I noticed that native grasses is another thing that Bruce Pascoe has spoken about, but also you talk about in terms of 
the knowledge that you now have about the diversity of native grasses that are, you know, critical to farmland as well in terms of not just for pastures and, and grazing, but also to make sure that the soil is stable and that topsoil isn't blown into the wind. And I wonder if you could talk a, a little bit about the types of grasses and the reason why these grasses and vegetation, the low-lying vegetation on farming land and other land is actually so vital to our ecology. Yeah, look, great question, Amy. Um I went off to university when I was uh, a couple of years at home, jackarooing, and then went off to university uh, wanting to do zoology and being a uh, wildlife researcher. And then my, my father had a heart attack, so I came back when I was 22 and took over the farm. Uh, I knew bugger all about how to manage a farm, even though I'd grown up on it. So I, I imitated what I thought were the best farmers around, and, and so I adopted industrial practices. And in retrospect... Uh, you know, did a lot of damage. I went into droughts where I'd bared the country because I thought you had to keep your animals and feed them grain and and uh, rather than selling down and being sensitive. And, um, you know, being a slow learner, I eventually saw that there had to be a better way of doing things than going into debt as you belted your landscape. And that's what tipped me towards regenerative agriculture. And I guess that journey is really, as well as, you know, my, my scientific researchers, uh, just revealed how different this land functions. So we mentioned before the, the different ecology that goes with the trees and the plants. Well, and, you know, Australia's native grasslands have co-evolved for millions of years. And with that means that your, your microbial, your micro world under the soil, as well as the insects and other things adapted to them above the surface, but they co-evolved also. And as I mentioned, the Things like the root fungus, the microhousal fungi, are very good at recycling scarce nutrients. But there's all sorts of collaborations and stuff going on that's suited, it's mutually beneficial and suited to this, if you like, this suite of evolved plants, bugs, insects, and the rest of it. And um, it's only now I'm appreciating that uh, the healthiest grasslands combine a whole diversity. You know what are called your carbon-4, C4 perennial grasses like our wonderful kangaroo grasses and other grasses that Bruce Pascoe talks about that, you know, some of the explorers found tons of, of um, grain stored in, in harvest places. They were used for that sort of purpose, but they, they play a huge role in having deep roots, um, conserving moisture, enriching the soil because uh, when you have good perennial plants, that means they're green for whenever they can through the year and that's what um, as they make sugars from the sun they, that's what puts the carbon in the soil and creates richness and uh, and drought resilience and those sorts of things and then you know there's a whole diversity of other sort of plants functioning as well including nitrogen fixing clovers and stuff but and that's without going into the forests and the and the, the native acacias and things that which are also legumes and as are, are some other trees so it's just it's a different way of, of functioning and um, and it's, it's only as I've started to regenerate our grasslands that you come to appreciate their beauty and, and their resilience. And, uh, and now we find here, but also wherever it's practised with regenerative grazing practices, these grasslands, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with having some exotic ones complementary as well, uh, including lucerne or something for your lambs or something, but... Um, these grasslands are now, when it's managed properly, the ecological grazing, you, you actually run more stock than you ever used to, but in a, in a lot more 
uh, less damaging and uh, resilient way. So mm. uh, that, that's what partly makes it exciting. It's a whole new way of thinking for this landscape and, in, and with new methods. Absolutely. And to pick up on what you just said and you're talking about, I obviously reading this book learned a number of new terms and concepts and one of them was set stocking, which you've been referring to in some ways in terms of the traditional and industrial way of managing stock, which would be to leave them in the paddock in one particular area for half a year, for example, where they would be eating that vegetation and not moving around the rest of the farm lands. And it was really interesting to hear about the fact that there is an alternative to that. And in fact, previous to the industrial revolution and industrial agriculture, there was an alternative way of doing things. And today there is an alternative way drawing on traditional knowledge, but also the latest scientific knowledge and understanding of ecology and soil science. So when we're talking about set stocking, for example, and a regenerative approach that is an alternative to set stocking, could you lay out for us, I guess, more detail for us to understand the essential differences between the two and what that really means for the land that you're working on? Yep, you're full of all the easy questions this morning. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's a great question. Uh, I mean, really, you could say that, you know, from my research in the old Merino history, etc., around about the 1870s, 80s, industrial wire was able to be produced and was imported from England, and that led to modern fencing, which became the lazy man's way of running stock, a lazy person's way. You could leave stock in a paddock knowing they wouldn't escape. Whereas prior to that, they had to be shepherders, and that often meant uh, if the shepherds were any good, as it happened in Europe, uh, and there's still wonderful French shepherds with incredible sophistication doing it today, the best shepherds knew that you had to keep moving them and, and uh, different parts of the landscape had different food, which the sheep could use for medicinal or nu nutrient requirements. There, grazing livestock are unbelievably intelligent at sniffing out chemicals and phytochemicals to satisfy needs that they lack. And, and uh, So what we did instead, when I first came home, not knowing anything, we had a 700-acre paddock that always ran uh, weathers, castrated male sheep, and you'd leave them there for at least six months, and that was how it was done. But grasslands, if, if you keep chewing out grass every time it tries to put out more leaves, it eventually runs out of energy and the roots die, and then you end up with shallow-rooted soils with no carbon going in to enrich it. And um, so the big breakthrough on the modern regenerative grazing, which has probably impacted hundreds of millions of hectares worldwide now, it's probably the most widespread regenerative practice, call it what you want, holistic grazing, regenerative grazing, but it came out of Zimbabwe, what was then southern Rhodesia, by a wildlife ecologist called Alan Savory in the 1960s. And being a wildlife ranger, and then he, he was uh, a leading scout in the Civil War, so he had to go around and bear feet. And at night, when he was tracking or, or dodging the gorillas, um, he, he noticed the difference of how soft the ground was where the native animals had been migrating and, and um, grazing versus where the farms were, which was rock hard and compacted. And so basically he asked the question, how come, and they still had these vast herds in the 1960s, how come when you've got millions of animals migrating, as they, they always did, because they were, they were hunted along by the predators, the lions and the big cats and others, um, 
And so they would, you'd have millions of animals grazing this grassland. There'd be dung and urine and trampling, uh, but then they had to move on after a couple of days. And yet these were the grasslands with the, that the most rich and vibrant and diverse anywhere on earth. And, and he asked himself, how come? And so eventually uh, he realised that it was the, the intense grazing and then the dung and the urine and, and trampling and disturbing the soil to let seed back in, etc., but then the long rest was the secret to their health because the plants weren't constantly grazed and eaten out. They could recover from the grazing, put their roots down further, etc. And so from that, uh, with trial and error over decades, he's evolved the modern form of regenerative or holistic grazing, and, and which has now got very sophisticated, but it's based on that pattern. So here, for example... We might have 80, 90 paddocks, and, and we really don't graze them. We, we try and make the mobs as big as we can, you know, pertinent to the paddock and their water. But they're really in a paddock more than two days. And then they may not come back for three, four months or more. So we're replicating that African experience, but under human management. And you've got very sophisticated grazing charts and other knowledge, and this is taught in a couple of schools around Australia now, and it's spreading worldwide. And... Uh, very sophisticated, but basically we're replicating that African pattern to regenerate soils and grasslands. and So that's really the nub of it. We're sort of letting nature work like she would want to. And what we're finding here now, those really precious, valuable native grasses are now starting to reappear, the kangaroo grasses and other carbon-4, C3 grasses. And... Why they're reappearing is that as you, as you regenerate your soils through this method and rest and et cetera, the, the roots are going deeper and uh, opening up air pockets and, and uh, your little beetles and bugs are going down deeper and they're bringing up seed that might have been stored there 100 years or more, which is now starting to appear and we're even finding wattles and acacias where there hasn't been any for over 100 years um, starting to sprout. So it's all a part of that, uh, you know, if we humans step back and let nature get on with it, she's pretty bloody good at it. She's been doing it for millions of years, so we should let her be the guide, really. Oh, I love that. She is pretty bloody good at it. Um, you just moved into my next question perfectly, which was, you know, you bring up the fact that there are so many other positive ecological consequences for some of these interventions or at least they're not even necessarily interventions in a harsh way, but uh, something where humans are carefully facilitating what nature would prefer and what is best for the actual landscape that you're working on. So I wondered in your experience and also interviewing so many other farmers, what are some of the beautiful unintended or unexpected ecological consequences to some of these regenerative practices that you've seen and that you've been engaging in? Look, there's so many. Um, I'll give you a few examples. The title for my book, Call of the Red Warbler, is a metaphor because a friend of mine, Nofreyota Canberra, began to regenerate his eroded creek using regenerative methods, both grazing but also work by guy called Peter Andrews who worked out that um, Australia's rivers used to be more chains of ponds than the, the sort of roaring fast rivers of North America and the Amazon or somewhere and, and so by using methods to slow down the water and let reeds reappear and um, 
get back to its old normal function that Australia is used to. So anyway, I said, come and have a look what's happened. So I went out there and, and we drove out to his country and went, went past the neighbour who was upstream of this creek and it was all set stock. It was a dry season, so it was bare. There was dry land salinity. The creek was eroding. Go over the hill into my friend's farm and here's a, a creek that's... There's, oh, few hundred metres either side of the creek was green because the soil had hydrated there because the creek had now slowed and was developing chains of ponds where the water was being held. And um, no salinity, no erosion now. And um, while we were standing at the creek watching the water trickle through a little crossing he'd built, there's a small patch of reeds, no, no bigger than, the, the, than a small-sized house or living room. And suddenly, out of these reeds came this beautiful call of, of a reed warbler. So I knew it because I'm pretty keen on the birds. And it suddenly hit me. Um, that was probably the first time in 150 years after Europeans had bashed and cleared the country that a water bird must have dropped some seeds back and these Phragmites reeds had grown. And this reed warbler, probably the first time in 150 years, a reed warbler had come back to that valley. And I thought, wow, what a metaphor for regeneration. Mm. Uh, but I'll give you an example of, my, uh, of our place here. Um, on our granite and sometimes basalt country, because uh, our granite was grassy woodland and it was all over-cleared in the 19th century, probably 1850s to the 1880s. And that meant it, it lost a lot of its diversity of plants, shrubs, trees, and therefore predatory insects and all that diversity. So my father told me, that since the 20s, when he came here, talking about uh, 1920s, um, that about every seven, eight years, uh, these wingless grasshoppers, uh, they're not the big plague fellas, but they're, they're you know, a small wingless grasshopper, they would hatch in plague proportions and, and instantly turn the place into a drought. And that would happen every seven or eight years. And that was happening because, A, there weren't any predatory insects, and B, the ground was so bare in places that they could lay their eggs and hatch. Anyway, beginning in the late 80s and accelerating through the 90s, we, we, uh, we changed our grazing and we kept our ground cover and we planted, um, planted 60,000, 70,000 native trees and shrubs here now in, in sort of corridors and patches trying to get the original function back into the land. We can't replant the whole 1,200 acres that's been cleared, uh, but we can at least get function so that insects and reptiles and birds can move out into the open country. Well, since we've done that, since the late 80s, we've not had a wingless grasshopper attack. And they, and they used to turn us into an instant drought, and you couldn't put an economic cost calculation on that, but it was huge. But we know people not far away with the old management are still getting those grasshopper plagues. Now, what was happening was that as the soil got a bit moister, uh, and A, there's no bare enough places for the, the grasshoppers to lay their eggs, but B, if they did, uh, the nematodes would attack them. Uh, a lot of research behind this. And then in the tree breaks, uh, you had little insectivorous birds, you had all sorts of parasitic insects and, and other bugs and little reptiles also attacking the grasshoppers. So nature basically solved the problem for us. And, um, I, you know, I couldn't put a, a calculated benefit on that, but, it, but it's uh, quite dramatic. And... Uh, there's so many examples I could tell you. A friend of mine south of here near Bombala regenerated his grasslands and, and did the same uh, sort of work in, in slowing down his river and creating big pools. And, and he's now got pools with um, 
nine big pools that have got platypus in them again, whereas they disappeared before. So, you know, we can get a win-win out of this. We can regenerate our landscapes back to where they should be uh, while making very healthy profits because you're reducing a lot of costs. You're not putting industrial inputs in and that sort of stuff. But also nature can return and, and, and work with you as well. So I think that's what makes this, uh, this sort of work pretty exciting. Yeah, and it must be so rewarding to witness these changes and to understand the flow-on effects of them and to see the work that you're doing actually make a huge difference, not just to the ecology, but even just visually it must be really stimulating and exciting. Oh, it is. You know, you know when you, you go for a walk now, which our family often does, you're seeing more birds, you're seeing variegated colours and patches and mosaics in the landscape instead of a uniform industrial monoculture sort of thing. And the other thing that excites us, we work with people like Greening Australia and, and um, there's a wonderful birdo with our local Greening Australia branch called Nikki Tours and, and, and she comes out and logs birds for us. And what we're finding as the, the overclearing continues up north, and, and bear in mind that this current government, state government, has relaxed clearing laws, which has led to something like an 800% increase in clearing of the wonderful um, woodland forests in our north, etc. But as the devastation occurs up there and into Queensland, the woodland birds are now the most endangered, most threatened species in Australia, group, a suite of species. What we're finding by both replanting and preserving, you know, upwards of 700 acres of native bush is that we're now starting to, to get at-risk or threatened woodland birds taking up residence here. So um, to us that's really important because, uh, you, you know, you're playing a double role. You've got insectivores for pests, but you're also giving them uh, refugia to try and bite out this time until hopefully our government comes to its sense and um, uh, encourages rather than uh, destroys native woodlands, etc. Mm, yes. Well, land clearing and native forest logging is such a huge problem in Australia, isn't it? And we are really the hot spot in the developed world for land clearing, which is shameful. But it is exciting that, you know, you've become conservationists really taking care of and actually supporting populations of endangered species. And given your original interest in your 20s around animals, and I know, you know, you studied them quite in depth as well as soil science, it must be so rewarding to have that element to farming, which I think so many people may or wouldn't think of as really part of a farmer's role in a very traditional industrial sense that we have of, you know, production. Look, that's a very perceptive comment. Um, you know, I've got lots of friends. I used to have a big merino stud and had a couple of hundred clients I used to travel to around Australia and, and a lot of them really honest, hardworking, decent people, but nature to them was very, they were indifferent to it. And I remember one particular case, I was in a, in a yard out west and there's a new bird that I wasn't familiar with calling and in the trees above us. And I said, what's that bird? And he said, I don't know, it's just a bird. The point I'm making, and that's all understandable, but to our family now, uh, every, every new type of bird or insect or something, it, it, and just seeing them around and getting to know them, it, it just adds so much to your enjoyment of life and your meaning of life. And, and that's without the pragmatic role of pest control or, or whatever. So... I just hope as this movement continues that people 
um, increasingly come to to enjoy and recognise them because, uh, as you say, we, we're, our track record on species diminishment and extinction is, is pretty horrific and um, no doubt we'll get onto this discussion later, but we're accelerating into what's called the Anthropocene and this epoch of Earth and uh, the great collateral damage is that um, we humans in the last few thousand years have precipitated the sixth greatest extinction event ever in the history of the earth and that that's nothing to be proud of no no absolutely and um and you do talk about you know the limits of the earth and the fact that originally farming in this regard was seen or termed as sustainable but this regenerative farming takes things to a different level and it has uh, i guess a different character to it than that. It's not just working within constraints. It's about actively facilitating the improvement and regeneration of the land and the environment and um, all of the living creatures that live on it. And one of the living creatures is human beings. And one of the things that I find so valuable in this book is actually also about the impact on human health and I know that epigenetics and genetics have, has been a focus of yours and a great interest of yours. And the chapter that talks about industrial farming, particularly looking at where, in fact, the, uh, the chemicals that we're using today came from in traditional farming approaches. I mean, I've got to say I was pretty gobsmacked and also very grateful that you took the time to take the reader through the history and to get a sense of how things did evolve in terms of that, that understanding of the soil and how that then changed and how German chemists, uh, in fact, really played a key role in creating the theory we have now that we've referenced earlier around um, the mineral theory of plant nutrition and the fact that soil, you, you harvest crops, it removes nutrients from the soil, so you have to put those nutrients back in, and that was that traditional way of thinking of things. And so we then see these modern fertilisers created, and not just fertilisers, but then also, you know, pesticides and I'd just really love to touch on that, if you don't mind, and talk about these key moments and how really we are still dealing with the legacy of that. And we're not even dealing with a legacy in the sense of, you know, 19th century science, but we're also still majority actively utilising it. Wow. Um, Take your pick as to what you want to touch on. Well, I, I think I'll start with big picture and then and, yeah. and illustrate some of your questions because, uh, you know, when I went back to uni, I hadn't been at uni since the 70s and then went back in uh, 2009 when I was in my late 50s to do a PhD and um, I've been doing other things. And in that period, we'd had the rise of the computer era and modern systems thinking, etc. And... Um, I really had to get my head around a, 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 what's called complex adaptive systems because that's what we're dealing with, whether it's um, a, a human-made system like the World Wide Web, which can constantly take in inputs and adjust, etc. That's why it's called adaptive. Or all ecological systems or the Earth, they're, 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 they're what are called complex adaptive systems that they're constantly adjusting and changing to disturbance or new inputs. So that's what our natural systems are. And if you think back to humans evolving in Africa, probably over a million years as a, as a, as a hominid before about a quarter of a million years ago, we probably 
finally evolved into the modern form of humans. But if you think about um, hunter-gatherers, so the women, and that still applies today with hunter-gatherer society, that they were probably, most, most Indigenous women with long culture can identify at least 500 food species and medicinal plants in their environment. The men were mainly the hunters, but they weren't just hunting meat. Um, those animals, particularly in Africa and Savannah where our species evolved, so we're evolved for this, those animals were browsing and grazing shrubs as well as grasses, and, and particularly the shrubs have got tens of thousands of what are called phytochemicals, tannins and, and terpenes and all sorts of things. Now, and we became, through eating the meat as well as what was in the vegetable food, hardwired for these nutrients and micronutrients for our immune system, for our functioning, etc. So we are evolved for that, not for a modern diet. So leading to what you're saying, as we moved into modern agriculture, um, we started to simplify that vast range of phytochemicals and minerals and nutrients because we were producing more monocultural crops, uh, etc., etc., and then we started to simplify the soil biology. As you said, uh, there's mainly some Germans in the uh, early 19th century that evolved at the modern soil science, uh, and initially uh, a wonderful merino breeder, but also uh, agronomist thinker Albrecht von Tarr, who was very close to realising that humus in the soil, with the rich biology that comes from healthy plant function, creating this humic substances and acids and stuff. That was the secret, but he, but he missed out on um, a couple of key components, which led another German scientist, particularly a guy called von Liebig, who came up with what's called the chemical box theory, that really all, all that plants needed was um, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium and a few other things, and you could um, grow crops, and that's how the modern fertiliser industry evolved in the mid-19th century both in England and Germany, and then topped off by German chemists, Fritz Haber, uh, along with a guy called Bosch, who was able to make nitrogen out of the air uh, through a chemical process, uh, and, and it was the same chemist who went on to develop the uh, nerve gases and the, and the stuff that the Nazis used in the concentration camps to exterminate Jews. So uh, it's got a dark history, some of this, but... What then evolved with industrial agriculture through the 20th century was the realisation that with superphosphate and um, nitrogen made from the air and, and um, a few other of those potassiums, etc., that you could grow crops and hide productively for an industrial food system. And after the war, um, particularly in, in, in Germany, but especially in America, there were these huge stockpiles of explosives and also chemicals. And so they said, what the hell do we do with them? And, and they very cleverly decided that we can start a whole new industrial agriculture business by turning some of those phosphorus explosives and others into fertilisers and the chemicals into pesticides like the early DDTs and others. And so away we went. But when you walk against the way nature's co-evolved, and that's what comes back to a complex adaptive system, all these feedbacks and deep relationships when you simplify that there's always a cost and um, so as we accelerated into the 1970s and 80s two things were happening the, the, the modern foods we were eating were bereft of a lot of the minerals and nutrients let alone the phytochemicals which were you know your terpenes and all those other things that are integral to some of our immune and health functions 
So that they were being stripped out of our modern foods, but we now know that the big number one breakthrough in herbicide use to control weeds in all the big main food crops, your, your mazes and your and your cereals and uh, etc. Uh, Roundup or glyphosate, which now goes out in, in the millions of tons worldwide, is the number one uh, herbicide. We now know it gets into our food, and when we ingest those foods, not only are they bereft of some of the key nutrients and defensive micronutrients and phytochemicals, but when it gets into our gut, now that, that's that's the critical story that we're only starting to appreciate in the last decade or more. The big scene of action is our gut, where all our food ends up. It's like our second brain. It's about the same weight. It's full of all these bugs, microbugs, and I think that's why we've been ignorant. We, you can't see them. You don't appreciate them. You know, your bacteria and your amoeba and all those guys, they're breaking down the food and, and, and affecting the, how the food's breaking into enzymes and proteins and hormones and stuff. We now know that uh, a chemical like glyphosate uh, is hugely disrupting how the gut functions, blocking a lot of those pathways, allowing the bad stuff now to get into the human bloodstream and spread around the body. We now know it's penetrating really sensitive barriers like the blood-brain barrier and even placental barriers. So what I find interesting when you look at a graph, you look at the exponential rise of the modern herbicides and fertilisers and about 10 or 15 years behind that, if you look at all the major modern diseases, cancers, ADHD, obesity, autism, etc., etc., they show exactly the same exponential rise, uh, but delayed by a decade or more. And we now know the cause is a the lack of nutrients and, and phytochemicals and stuff, but also this disrupting effect of things like glyphosate and, and other um, even worse sort of chemicals. And, uh, you know, I've heard leading epidemiologists and researchers in this space in the States in the fields of autism, etc., saying the two big, big diseases are rising, like, you know, autism, for example. 30 years ago, there's something like only one in 500 children in America had autism. They're now expecting by the mid 2030s, it'll be like one in three will have autism. That, that's the exponential rise we face. And they're saying that those two big diseases, just obesity and autism alone, will be enough to kill any modern economy. So this is huge stuff, let alone saving the planet, but saving this huge cost that's going to destroy the economy's capacity to, to, to fight what's coming. So uh, this is just big picture stuff. And of course, it's contested, but there's so much evidence now that's mounting. And you just look at those two delayed stories of exponential rise of the use of the poisons and chemicals and fertilizers and the simplification of a food chain. And then you look at the delayed parallel exponential curves and modern health diseases. It sort of um, doesn't take too many brains to work out that they just might be linked. Yeah. Oh, you've summarised that so beautifully. Um, one of those other parts that we won't get a chance to delve into much is epigenetics and, of course, people being able to pass on changes down the generation lines in terms of our genetic switches being altered by chemicals and pesticides and residues that we might be consuming. So that's another effect that will have very much long-term implications. So it's not just us and our own individual choices, but our choices will be affecting generations to come, won't they? 
Absolutely spot on. I mean, I'll give you a very quick, simple analogy. You know, the, Watson and Crick were awarded the Nobel Prize in the 60s, I think, for cracking the DNA code, explaining how it was made, the, the double helix, etc. And we thought that was it, that you can only get genetic change through mutation. But without going into the background, we now know that there is another form where you can get genetic change. It's not through the changing of the DNA, but it's the switching on or off of the genes that allow that to be expressed, those genes to be expressed. And environmental influences will do that, and that's what's called epigenetics, sort of additional genetic function. And um, you're absolutely right. The uh, epigenetic effects, the, the, the different gene switchings on and off of getting the wrong stuff into your gut, where it, it penetrates and gets into your body or affects the microbes, is having profound effects, and it's, um, epigenetics is very much part of that. And so it shows just how critical and urgent and vital this area is and also how vital farmers are. And I know many people who might have created their own small veggie patch in lockdown would start to really appreciate farmers because it is a trial and error process and a really difficult thing to, to work out. But they have such a critical role of feeding everyone in Australia and on the planet. And so, you know, the role of the farmer and the role of regenerative agriculture, it may, on the face of it, before this conversation, not seem like a particularly urgent topic of discussion and public policy debate, but to me and presumably to you, it does really have a critical role to play in multiple policy areas that we deal with every single day in our economy, in our environment, and also in our health are just three examples. And of course, climate change is another example. So taking it back to farmers and maybe concluding on this point, I know that regenerative agricultural practices are very broad and there are a number of approaches and we've spoken about a number of them as well. For those who perhaps were not aware of regenerative agriculture and want to support it more and understand those practices and those people who are undertaking those practices and also encouraging other farmers who may want to or be inclined to or have that significant life change or, um, you know, catalyzing moment. What are some of these practices? I know that there's things like biodynamics is one that I'm familiar with, but, you know, how do we support those types of farmers like yourself, like those you've interviewed and others who are engaging in this broad range of regenerative practices and how can we identify them better and make sure that people living in urban areas as much as regional areas are actually supporting this and making, helping this change come about? Absolutely key question. Uh, I would say the best thing for anyone with a family, look, I'll just quickly say yesterday I was out collecting mulberries from an old heritage tree we've got. And compared to the tree I planted when I was first married, it's like a different food. It, the, the, the taste explosion explodes in your mouth. So those old varieties are chock full of capacity to grow lots of nutrients. So uh, what I'm alluding to is that compared to the crap that you'll see on the shelves of modern supermarkets, which the white goods and other things, that, the white foods that are designed to live on a shelf, but they're, they're totally bereft of nutrients. They've come out of dead soil where the biology isn't accessing the nutrients and they've lost all their goodness. If you go to a farmer's market or grow your own veggies and mm. you taste the difference, um, the difference 
of this explosion of taste in your mouth is all to do with the nutrients that have got into that food due to healthy biology and, and regenerative agricultural practices. So if you can access and support any, whether it's branded organics or, or um, food box schemes or whatever, your investment in your family's health, but also the planetary health, because we now know that things like climate change, we now, the research shows that the number one best pathway to pull carbon dioxide back out of the earth and buried in the soil is through regenerative agriculture. That comes from major work where the 80 best methods um, by a bloke called Paul Hawken and scientists were calculated and a lot of numbers crunched. And, and out of the top 20 best methods, half of them were regen agriculture. So if you call it regen ag, we, we're number one at, at addressing climate and number one at addressing the modern human health crisis um, through healthier foods without being nutrient empty and, and full of glyphosate, etc. So, so where it's coming from is, yes, things like biodynamic farms, local market gardens, organic growers at the farmer's market. If you can either grow some, some of your own in your backyard just using healthy nutrients or go to those local markets, it's coming out of those sort of smaller operations. But there's regenerative croppers now growing broadacre crops just using biological inputs, uh, you know, like uh, the normal microbial things and, and compost and, and growing it with, you know, what's called multi-species and healthy meat off landscapes. Uh, you know, you, you're going to get um, off a healthy grassy landscape that's not industrial but with diversity. You're going to get all those extra nutrients and phytochemicals that we've co-evolved for. You won't just get a lot of them from vegetables. Some of them you can only get through through uh, ruminant animals that have processed it. So without getting into the, the vegan-type debate, um, it's everything in balance. But it, the more you can source that, that's come from a regenerative, organic, or whatever you want to call it, the more your investment in your family's health and the planet's health it will be. And, and that's probably just those decisions means that everyone can play a role in trying to address these mega issues for our society. Mm, I'm so grateful to you, Charlie. It's just been such a pleasure and so fascinating to hear everything you have to say. And uh, I know that we could continue this conversation and there are a number of other topics that you go into depth on in this book. So that's why I do urge everyone, this is not just a book for farmers, this is a book for everyone. So whether you are engaged in farming or not, please consider reading this book or listening to it on the audiobook. You can hear Charlie's beautiful voice read it out to you if you like, which I also did as well. So um, you can listen back or read this book. It's Call of the Reed Warbler, A New Agriculture, A New Earth, and it's all about regenerative farming. Thank you so much, Charlie Massey, for talking with me. And um, yeah, I can't wait to hear how things evolve for you and how you and your farming colleagues continue to learn and evolve your practices and also to engage with First Nations peoples as well. No, Amy, thanks very much for your interest and uh, generosity and, 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 and all your good questions. Uh, terrific. Thank you. Such a pleasure. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.